Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys. Uh, glad you all are here. And if you're worshiping with us online, glad you are here as well. We're going to be in the book of Exodus again today. We've been in this uh, for the duration of the summer. We're going to be in Exodus 18. We are close to getting to Mount Sinai finally, and the journey's not taking us nearly as long as it took them. So uh, we're moving along in the process. Uh, probably what we're going to do over the next few weeks, just to let you know, uh, we're going to go over the next couple of chapters. We'll probably hit the pause button on Exodus with school starting. We'll do a, a couple other things and then jump back in uh, at a later date and try to finish up the book of Exodus so we don't miss anything, okay? So those of you that are wondering how this is going to play out, uh, that's a little bit of a roadmap for you. Uh, but we are in Exodus 18, and uh, the, uh, the, really the title of the message series is Dwell. Uh, it's all about this idea that what God is doing is he's creating a people for his name, that he wants to be relationally present with his people. He's leading them by fire and by cloud. Uh, he is giving his spirit to them. Uh, we're moving to uh, Mount Sinai where he's going to give his law to the people and helps to shape them, bringing them out of captivity uh, from Egypt. And uh, what we'll learn today is what we've been learning is that this is a process, that freedom is a process, transformation is a process. And there's been episode after episode where God in his grace drew them out of captivity but then he's about the business of shaping them. And if you've ever gone through the process of trying to be transformed, it is a painful business. Uh, they've gone through uh, external obstacles. Last week, we had the Amalekites. We've had the Pharaoh's army. We've had the Red Sea. We've had all these different things. Uh, we've, went through, we've gone through internal uh, obstacles among the people of God where they're complaining and grumbling. And today is going to be one more of those internal obstacles in, in Exodus 18. Uh, and it's going to involve some unsolicited advice. Have you ever got some advice that you were not ready for or didn't ask for and that you just, anybody had that experience where somebody's giving you some advice and you weren't ready for it? Uh, I, I had a pastor friend and uh, he was an older guy and uh, he, I can, this is something an older guy can get away with saying, okay? Uh, it was an old school church where you stood at the door after the message and as people were leaving, you know, they'd come and shake your hand and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a protocol or etiquette uh, and, and a lot of churches still do that today. But uh, he was talking about he'd gotten back from a, a, a hunting trip and he'd let his beard grow out, you know? And so he came back, he came by and he was, had preached a sermon. They'd had their worship service and everything. He posted up at the door at the exit and everybody was filing by a good pastor, good sermon pastor, appreciate you and all, all those kind of things. Have a good day. Uh, have a great week, all that stuff. And then there was this one elderly lady that came by and uh, she was famous for sharing her opinions and giving unsolicited advice to whoever would listen and even if they wouldn't listen. Uh, and she came up to him and said his name and she said, she goes, you know what? You need to cut that beard off of your face. And uh, his response, I think it shocked him a little bit, but his response was, I'm so glad that you shared that with me. I've never liked your hair. <laughs> and I was like, 
I could never have gotten away with saying that. Uh, and apparently, I mean, he, he survived the incident. But sometimes we get, uh, we get unsolicited advice, things that we're not ready for. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Uh, but what we're going to get today is some advice that's unsolicited from a father-in-law. Uh, sometimes family advice is some of the hardest advice to accept. But we're going to see it in light of something that God is using to actually continue the transformation both of Moses as an individual and the nation of Israel as a people. And so I want to introduce the, the scene to you. We're going to be in uh, verse 13, Exodus 18. This is where we pick up the story. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning until evening. So this particular day was uh, introducing a scenario, a, a scenario where Moses, uh, had, they've gone through all these difficulties. I mean, he's been through you know, meeting God at a burning bush. Uh, he's traveled down in faith. He has uh, gone before the most powerful ruler on the planet. Uh, there have been plagues. There has been all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, there's been battles right and left, and he has been challenge after challenge after challenge. Well, what seems to set in place in verse 13 is what you would call like going to work on Monday. Uh, they've come through a battle. He has gotten up. The next day, the, the calendar turns and he finds his place posted up in the middle uh, of wherever they makeshift village that they've got going on in this caravan. Uh, and there has been a line that has been formed. Uh, there's, it's kind of like going to the DMV, you know, like where they take a number and you're wondering when it's going to be your turn. Uh, he is posted up there in the line has gotten long. There are groups of people, uh, probably as far as I can see, because uh, the, the number of people most estimate to be around 2 million people. And he's been the one to lead them. He's the one that's guided them. He's the one, kind of the primary figure of leadership. And that's, uh, that's got him into a situation where everybody's looking to him. They're all looking to him for answers, uh, to settle disputes, and we've already found out a lot about this group of people that they're pretty cantankerous, they like to grumble, they like to complain. There's a lot of contention uh, within, their, uh, uh, within their midst inside the, this family of God. Now they're trying to learn how to operate, who's in control, where they're going, where they're going to get uh, uh, food, all these type of things, and problems are arising. And, and the question becomes for them, like, well, who's going to settle it? Well, you're not in charge. Well, you're not in charge. Well, we'll go to the one that seems like he's in charge. We'll, we'll go to Moses. And so Moses's Monday, if you will, is filled from morning until night. And all he's doing is he's customer service, you know, those customer service jobs where you're sitting there and people have got a complaint and you're filled in the complaint and you're trying to uh, come up with a solution for them and fix their problem. Uh, this is not necessarily the most fun scenario. And if you're Moses, you've got to be asking the question, is this, is, is this what this was all about? Uh, we went down there, we got him out of Egypt, we're supposed to be going to the promised land, and here we are, and I've got to imagine his mind is running as everybody's sharing their problems, is like, how did I get here? Well, we were introduced previous to this, uh, in the episode previous to this, uh, he's actually returned home. We know where he is geographically located. He's back in Midian. Uh, it's back where he started. It's kind of like a homecoming of sorts. Uh, and there's a, uh, an individual that got uh, introduced in the earlier part of chapter 18, and that was uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. 
Well, Jethro sees everything that's going on with Moses and he kind of steps in and offers an observation and he follows it with a little bit of advice. This is his observation. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for these people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning until evening? So imagine this, okay, I don't know, I'm a father-in-law, okay? So I'm trying to imagine myself going to my son-in-law's house and saying, you know, well, hey, uh, why are you spending your money that way? Why are you leading that way? Why are you taking care of your house that way? Like I'm offering my unsolicited opinion, right? And I, I, hopefully I'm wise enough. We'll ask Adam later, but I, I, hopefully we're wise enough to, to know that I'm not gonna do that uh, unsolicited opinion. But imagine for a second if you're Moses and Jethro says, well, why are you doing this? My first response, if I'm him, I'm just gonna be completely honest, is something like, well, listen, uh, where were you about a day ago? Where were you the day before that? Where were you at the, at, at the sea? Where were you when I went to Pharaoh? Listen, don't bother me. I'm doing the very best I can because that's our normal response, right? We get defensive when somebody's are uh, observing what we're doing. But fortunately, his father-in-law sees something that's just not right. And he's pointing out a problem initially that we're gonna dig into. He says, why are they all coming to you? And why are they all standing around you? It seems like the narrative, the story has, has transitioned in this moment. And don't miss it because the prime mover in the story has been God. But the center of the story in Exodus 18 has become Moses. Moses is sitting in the middle of the people and people really don't know what to do unless he tells them what to do. So Moses is here's this observation and he's got to come up with an answer. And so here's his answer in verse 15, Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instruction. Well, there's a couple of things embedded in this. The first thing is, uh, I, I think just the natural thing, well, why are you, why are you doing this? Well, well, they're coming to me. Of course, I'm gonna answer their, their questions. I mean, they're coming to me. You know, I think the second thing is, is that they're coming to him to seek God's will. I think there's a desire, a genuine desire to say, well, you're the one that's hearing from God. Let me come to you and, and, and you tell us what to do because we haven't talked to God. I mean, there's no episode here so far where any individual other than Moses has spent time face to face with God speaking to him as a friend. And so obviously you're gonna say, well, this is the guy that's got the inroad. Uh, so I'm gonna go to Moses and figure out what he says. I'm not gonna listen to you or you. I'm gonna listen to Moses. And I think there's also a natural thing that happens here that's insinuated. It's something that I've experienced in my life. Maybe you've experienced it. I, I see evidence of it uh, all around us. Uh, it, it's when God moves through an individual in your life, they become, they are, become elevated in your life of sorts. Uh, maybe you can think back to a time in your life where maybe it was a pastor, a friend, a spouse, a teacher, a parent, somebody like that, that God used them in your life to bring you out of captivity or speak into you in some way. And, I mean, it was, a, it was a course correction in your life. I mean, things changed. Uh, maybe it was a pastor, a sermon you heard, or it was a camp experience. I don't know, a church experience. And, and typically what happens with that is when God moves through an individual, it's very easy for us to get fixated on that individual. Because if God spoke to them, through them once, then he must be going to speak through them again and again. 
And so in our culture, we see that a lot where uh, we will take someone and the God use them. And then we just begin to, they become our go-to, right? Uh, they don't even have to be in our church. They don't even have to be in our, uh, in our city anymore. I mean, they can be a pastor you follow or a speaker you follow or some kind of famous person you follow. And you just, man, you follow them. And what they say, it's gold. Some of y'all are like that with news channels, uh, whoever your favorite news uh, anchor is, or uh, it's barely even news these days, it's all editorial, it seems, but they're your take. I mean, you, you listen to them and you feel like they're your authority. And why? Because there was a moment where you thought, well, that makes sense. And it affected you. And there's a good level of that. that, that that's supposed to be part of our experience. God's supposed to use people in our lives. But there's also a caution, a danger with it where we begin to run to that person over and over again, and we never actually get to the point where we're going to God for ourselves. And what's happened within the nation of Israel is natural, it's understandable, and on some level it's good. But well, I think the reason we're getting this story right here is it was going in a sour direction. It was about to turn to a bad place. It was gonna become destructive, both for God's people and it was gonna be destructive for Moses himself. Uh, just a summary, uh, I, th I think there's four main problems. The first problem that we see in this passage is for Moses is that he left his calling and he assumed other responsibilities. And this is subtle. Um, he was told by God to go down and to lead the people out of captivity. Uh, he was never told to get involved in all the minutia of all the deliberations about all the situations that they were going through, to get down into all the details, the gross details of their life and be the prominent one to make the decision for everything. That was never God's calling on his life. But there's been something that's happened. And I think it's the second problem that you see in this. He began to focus on the urgent rather than the important. See, that's, that's the decision we always make with our calling. I, I battle it all the time, perhaps you do as well, uh, where you know there was a point in time where like, hey man, I know what God's called me to do. And you begin to do that thing. Well, that comes with a whole other list of things that you weren't expecting. And before you know it, you've lost the essence of what God had called you to do. And you begin to do all the uh, numerous things that are accompanying the thing. And you wake up one day and you're like, well, Am I even doing what I was called to do in the beginning? Well, usually the reason that happens is there's so many urgent things. And if there's a line of people that are, have all these questions and disputes and they're coming to you, those are urgent. You gotta, you gotta answer the questions, you gotta meet the needs, you've gotta press in. And there's a part of this that makes you begin to feel important, makes you feel valuable, makes you feel like you're the one to go to. And if that happens, long enough, it begins to point in a really, really dangerous and destructive direction. Well, this is how you get there. I think what happens with him is the third thing, is he adopts a reactionary approach to leadership. Uh, he's actually just posting up and he's waiting for the problems to come to him. Uh, he, he's saying like, well, I, I mean, I, I'm not out in front of anything. Everything is on the back end of all the issues. Now, uh, all of us are smart enough to know, I think, logically, that that's not a very good way to lead anything. Uh, it's not a good way to lead our families. It's not a good way to lead our jobs. This uh, sports team, can't, can't, you can't win that way. And churches can't survive that way. We're, all we're doing is reacting. We have to begin uh, to lead out of our calling. We have to begin to lead uh, not just on what's 
urgent, but what's important. And we cannot become people that are just reacting to situation because that's exactly what's happening in this situation with Moses. And it's headed in a really bad direction. And I think it, the direction it's headed, it actually arrives at a point, which is I think the fourth problem that I don't think he even meant to do, but he was perpetuating a system that was all about him. He was perpetuating a system around him where everybody had to come to him to get everything that they needed. And they readily did that because people will look for whoever can meet their needs. And if you're gonna step up, if you're gonna take it on, then we're gonna come to you. And I think that he was in a position here where uh, he began to feel the value. He began to feel the urgency of it. And it was beginning to get reinforced. And the natural end of this path, of this road, is narcissism. This leads, if left unchecked, this will lead to the point where the individual in the leadership position will actually become the controller, the dictator of everything that's going on. Uh, you, you can't penetrate it. Uh, uh, what he or she says is what goes. You know, this is, this is the way this ends up. And there's been hundreds, if not thousands, of churches throughout history that have imploded because of this very thing. And I think in, in this observation that his father-in-law makes, I mean, he's got fresh eyes on this thing. He hasn't been on the journey. He's seeing it for the first time. And what does he see? He sees danger. What's happening is Moses is being posted up as the center of the story. And I don't think Moses meant to do it. I don't think he set out to do it. I don't think anyone else set out to put him in that place, but left unchecked. This is the natural trajectory of all of our fallen souls. And so what is Moses' father-in-law say, say, well, he gives him some advice. He calls him out first. He says, what you are doing is not good. What you're doing is not good. Now, again, put yourself in Moses' shoes. You're hearing your father-in-law. You just had this big family reunion the day before. Uh, and now kind of all the euphoria and all the kind spiritedness is, is kind of gone. It's kind of like you deflated the balloon, right? Uh, because he has got to be under pressure. He's been through the ringer. He's been through all this stuff. But his father-in-law comes to him and says, hey, I want to offer my opinion. I want to give you some unsolicited advice. And this is important just to hang out for just a second because th there's something in all of us that stiff arms, people speaking into us. Uh, and I think it's, um, it's even heightened uh, today in our current culture. I mean, people call it a cancel culture or, or whatever, you know, where, uh, I mean, we, we just don't want people to speak into anything. There's no dialogue anymore. We can't have a healthy discussion. It's one side or the other. Uh, we, we, we try to see through what everybody's saying. Uh, I've really never pastored a church through this period of uh, anything like this. I haven't lived through anything like this. I, I, I mean, I feel like it's, it's a big problem. Uh, and you see it play out in all kinds of ways. And we have to recapture the receptivity as people to be able to hear and welcome in people that want to speak wisdom into our life. That's true friendship. Matter of fact, Proverbs 27, 6 says it, it says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wound is something that hurts. If you've ever been wounded, it's not a pleasant experience. It's not something that you relish in. It's not something that you enjoy. But a wound from a friend can be trusted. 
That means that the words of a friend that are honest and filled with grace, that are for your benefit, can be trusted because the wound that is created is actually meant to heal. That's the interesting thing about words. Words have power in our lives to affect us on a deep level. But there is a point of communication, there's a point of receptivity, a point of contact where what is being said has to be received and you have to begin to judge and understand the motivation behind the party. Because most of us, we think that if anyone says something we don't agree with, if anybody challenges us on any level, then they can't be trusted. They're not a friend, they're an enemy because your job as a friend is to prop me up to encourage me, to tell me what, we're, what I'm doing is right. And a lot of us, we run to circles where people will always agree with us. But what's happening in the situation with Moses is his father, it's like, he, you know, I mean, this is kind of like a, uh, I, I guess you'd say he's got the, the wisdom of experience. And so he's got nothing to lose. He's willing to step in and be a friend. And he's not an enemy. And so what does he say? What you're doing is not good. And then he goes on from there in verse 18. And what does he say? He says, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. You can see this oozing with care, right? I mean, this is just kind of overflowing with, he sees this and he is concerned for Moses. And he is concerned for all these people that are following Moses. And it's ironic. And I think it's intentionally ironic if you compare it in the story and the narrative to chapter 17. Because what, we're, what we learned in chapter 17 is Moses knew all about things that were heavy. And he knew, all, he knew all kinds of things about people coming and helping him when he started to get tired. You remember the story when the, he sent Joshua and the guys down in the, the valley to, to fight? He went up on the hill and his, he was holding up his staff. And when his hands grew tired, uh, the people around him, they took a stone and they put it under him and they sat on it. And then Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. What, what was that all about? It was about this thing getting heavy. And what was it all about? Somebody coming and propping his hands up and dividing the load and, and, and carrying the weight and encouraging him. And uh, what happened in the people down in the valley was predicated upon what happened on the mountain and their ability to share this load for the sake of the people. And that was a physical load. But we all know, right? That's what he alludes to in verse 18 when he says, this is too heavy for you. You cannot ha handle it. This is not good for you. It's not good for them because there's different kinds of weights. What kind of weight was he talking about that was too heavy? Well, I think there's at least three. I think one of those is this. I think there was a weight of expectations on him. I think people expected him to have the answers to everything. And we know Moses. We got the behind the scenes footage where he didn't know very much and he doubted and he was scared. But from the front, the stage persona of Moses is that he had it all together. Why? Because, I mean, if you saw God move through Moses publicly and you saw him from a distance because every, all two million people can't get up close, what they saw was they, they expected, man, this guy is the leader. And you know he had to feel those expectations. And the expectations of people is a unique kind of weight of leadership because everybody's got different expectations. And I always say this about expectations is expectations are the thing that control relationships. The distance between your expectation and the reality in a relationship 
in a marriage relationship, in a leadership relationship, in any kind of relationship. I expect this. The reality is this. This is the real experience. The distance in that is the distance of the discord, the distance in the relationship. And it oftentimes falls on the leader to say, I'm going to shorten the gap on expectations. I'm going to try to live up to expectations. But the problem is with 2 million people or 200 people or 20 people or two people, it's hard to meet everybody's expectations because they're varied. Everybody expects something different out of you. I think Moses' father-in-law looked at him and said, man, you are being crushed under the weight of all these expectations. And when you crush under the weight of expectations, then you take on another weight, and I would call it the weight of appearances. You try to appear like what you're expected to be. I've got to be this. I've got to show that I'm in this. I've got to not neglect this. I've got to be out front. I've got to be seen a certain way. And there's so much today, isn't there, uh, that is all about controlling our persona, controlling the way that people see us, uh, editing things, photoshopping things, making ourselves look what we should look like. I mean, it's hard to be transparent. It's hard to be honest. Church oftentimes is the last place you want to go and actually be transparent, honest uh, about who you really are and what you're dealing with which is so hypocritical and so ironic because this is the very place that we're supposed to run and be honest and confess who we really are so that God can come in and redeem us and we can partner together in one, in one another's transformation. But oftentimes, what are we doing? We're all getting crushed under the weight of expectations and crushed under the weight of appearances. But I also think there was one more weight. And I think this was a genuine one. I think he had the weight of responsibility on him. I think he looked at this group of people and he saw that they were beaten down. They were hungry, they were thirsty, they needed direction. And he took it upon himself to feel like I'm the one responsible for all of these people. Now that is a crushing weight. If you've ever been concerned about anybody except yourself, anytime you add another person, you know that the weight is multiplied exponentially. It's not just one person, it feels like 10. Why? Because now you're filtering all your decisions, all your time, all your resources, not just through what you want and what you think you need, but what this person needs. And if you're looking at a sea of 2 million people, can you imagine the weight of responsibility? They're all looking for direction and they're looking to me. And so what does he do? He does the natural thing that most of us do. He just steps into the responsibility and he does the best that he can. So, We've diagnosed the problem, there's some issues, but what's the advice? Well, here's the advice. This is what his father-in-law says. He says, first thing, <coughs> excuse me, listen now to me and I will give you some advice. <clears throat> and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Two things in this one verse. The first one is he just simply says, listen to me. Now, the first law of leadership is listening, isn't it? it, it it's to listen. Like if you can't listen, you can't lead. Uh, I mean, you can be a boss, but you can't lead. And he's telling him, listen, I, I need you to listen to me for a second. This is the first test of any kind of leadership is do you have the ability to listen or not? Because remember, the gravitational pull is what Moses says goes. He has to make the conscious choice to be humble enough to actually listen to the advice. It doesn't matter what is said after this point if he will not lean in and listen. Listen. 
And that means come, uh, overcoming a lot of obstacles. And what it actually means is that if leadership is dependent upon listening, then listening is dependent upon humility. And here's what we know about Moses. We know from the proof and from scripture that he was noted as a humble person, as a humble man. Numbers 12, three actually says it really humorously to me. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, I don't know if that's true. And you say, well, it's in the Bible. I think it's hyperbole. I think they're trying to make a point. I, I don't know that there was a scale like, I wonder how he's doing today. He's got five stars in humility. Everybody else on the planet, four. Three, two, one. I think it's just simply saying the ability to listen was evident in Moses in this situation. And so when he says, listen to him, give him advice, if you go back to the passage, this is what he says, bring their disputes to him. To who? To God. Now he was listening to the disputes and he was ruling in the disputes, but he takes a different point, Jethro does. And, and this is important to note. If you think about Moses' background and you think about Jethro's profession, Moses' background, he grew up in the court of Pharaoh, in the home of Pharaoh. Now, this was uh, uh, learning leadership uh, in, in an immersive way. Uh, and what do we know about Pharaoh's leadership? We know that it was oppressive. We know that it was controlling. We know that uh, it was a dictatorship. There was nothing like necessarily sit down and you had to go through a classroom for this. This was just what the way that you lead. This was naturally ingrained. It's what's picked up. And we all pick things up uh, about how to lead. And so I think a lot of this that we're seeing in Moses was just residual of this is just what he knows. This is the way that you do it. There's one person in charge. In this case, there's one guy in charge and what he says goes. And of course, this is the way the world is supposed to work. But if you notice the instruction, the advice from Jethro, uh, he says, you're not to judge them. You need to bring their disputes to God. And this has everything to do with his profession because he was a priest. And you know what a priest does? A priest represents a group of people before God. They intercede for a group of people. They represent a group of people uh, to God on a group of people's behalf. And so he said, listen, I, I know this. I, I know from experience, Jethro would say, you're acting more like Pharaoh than you are a priest. You're trying to make decisions rather than intercede and go to God for the decisions. It is much more powerful for you not to try to get immersed in the minutia and the details, but rather to retreat and go and talk to God about it and intercede because that repositions God at the center of his people. And this is not a slight adjustment. This is a powerful adjustment. This is what the church has to recapture in the coming years is we have not to be a personality driven people. We have to be a people that are driven by prayer and the presence of God. And this is an instruction, a piece of advice from an older, wiser individual to a young guy that's trying to learn. Well, I say young, he's old, but he's young by this standard, learning how to lead. So first thing is to listen, intercede, instead of trying to make all the decisions. And then in verse 20 has two more pieces of instruction. And we'll rush through this. He says, teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. This is shifting from reactionary leadership to proactive leadership. 
This is saying rather than catch the problems on the back end, why don't you instruct and teach on the front end? Uh, instead of them coming to you so that you can inform them what God says, why don't you teach them what he does say so that they can shape a process to actually remedy a lot of their own issues themselves because God's principles are true and applicable to everyone of all time. And so why don't you just take that and drop it in the front instead of trying to pick it up on the back? And I think this is what defines God's people. Uh, matter of fact, if you were to go to Acts chapter 2, and you're able to look at the first church uh, in Acts 2 as it begins to be birthed after Pentecost. And you see the description in Acts chapter, 40, uh, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And the thing that really distinguished them were all these characteristics, right? They, they share, they meet in the houses together, they're seeing great things happening. But if you look at the key transition of the church, what defined them was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why is that? Because they didn't know how to live this way. Nobody did. Jesus introduced a completely new revolutionary way to live the way we were designed to live. And none of us naturally go that way. And so it takes teaching and it takes learning. And so the people of God have always been a group of people that have to prioritize teaching and learning. And this is an area we have to grow in as a church. This is a place that we have to, we, we have to mature as a church. We have to mature as learners and we have to mature as teachers. That means we have to get a lot more intentional about teaching because a lot of the things that we deal with are reactionary, not proactive. And so the shift that uh, Jethro is actually um, uh, suggesting here is something that we need to apply today. And the question is for you. Um, do you need to put yourself in a position to learn? Do you need to put yourself in a better environment to learn? Do you need to get more resources to learn? Because there's so many things going on in life right now. If you're just left as a reactionary approach to life, just get in line, pick a number, and we'll get to you when we get to you. But nobody wants to live that way. You don't even want to go get your tags renewed, right? Because you don't want to wait in that line, much less live life. But he doesn't just say teach them. He also says show them, model for them how to live. Uh, this is the power uh, of a life well-lived, a life worthy of the gospel, the New Testament writers would call it. Uh, this is when Paul says things like, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I mean, that's a scary thing to say out loud. I mean, me standing up here and saying, hey, why don't y'all just follow me, and I'm going to show you how you follow Jesus. That, that's a big deal to say that. But shouldn't we all be in the process of being able to say that to someone? To say to someone, hey, I'm following Jesus, come along and follow him with me. Uh, those of you that are parents, you're doing this whether you know it or not. You know, you're, you're, your kids are watching you. Uh, that's why you don't have to sit down with them and say, hey, son, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, here's what you're supposed to say, right? Uh, why? Because when you hit your thumb with a hammer, whatever comes out of your mouth just taught them and modeled to them what to say. When someone cuts you off in traffic, when you're online, when you're in a worship service, are you engaged or not? When you're, or do you study scripture? Do they see you praying? Uh, all those type of things. You have friends, uh, college students on campus, students in school. Like We're all living lives that are modeling and showing and displaying something. And so what does he say to him to do? He says, listen, I want you to refocus your priorities. I want you to teach and I want you to display. I want you to walk with God personally. 
And that's a lot. I mean, imagine for a second if we were all devoted to those two things, teaching and modeling. It, it would fix a lot of problems, wouldn't it? Uh, it would change a lot of dynamics. And, and I think all those things go into helping us to, we got to listen, right? We got to teach and we got to learn and we have to display and we have to receive. But the last thing that he shares is, I think, a really powerful concept that we see all throughout scripture. And it begins in verse 21. This is the last piece. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges over the people for all, uh, at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. So this last piece is simply to share, to share leadership, to share the responsibility, to share the weight. And we see this continually through scripture in the people of God, that it was never supposed to be built around an individual. The, the trajectory was always that Jesus was the head of the church and that he appoints and gifts people, capable men and women within the church to carry out the edification of the church. Every one of us has been given a gift for the building up of the body of Christ. God has gifted people for the benefit of the church, teachers, apostles, leaders, pastors, uh, all types of things within the church in order to edify and build the church. Why is that? Because Jesus himself modeled this. Jesus was the best sharer and delegator of responsibility the world has ever seen. I mean, he was a perfect leader. He was a perfect man. He was a perfect God. So much so that when he brought people and they followed him and he taught them, he taught them and he modeled for them, just like what's being uh, told to Moses here. They came along, but that's not all that he did. He also handed off the responsibility. Obviously, he chose 12 disciples. We know that. Uh, he would go by the sea in Galilee and he'd talk to some fishermen and say, hey, come follow me. He'd go by a tax collector's booth and he'd say, hey, come follow me. He'd go and he'd go into homes where men and women of all various backgrounds and he'd call them to follow him. And we see the scriptures begin to play off where uh, people would come to him with problems and they'd say, hey, Jesus, you need to fix this. And you know what he'd say? Famous case. All these people are hungry. Jesus, you need to feed them or send them home. And he says, you feed them. You give them something to eat. And he involved them in the process. He handed off leadership. He sent out 72. We learned that by the end of the gospels that there were around 120 that were waiting in the upper room. Men and women that had begun disciples of Jesus were following him. And in Acts 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down and dwells everybody that was in the room, the men and the women both that were in the room. And they begin to follow Jesus together and begin to lead the people of God. And for about three centuries, there was not a facility, a church structure that they would meet in. They would meet in homes. They would meet in different marketplaces because they couldn't even own property at this time. There was no institution called a church. They were families, brothers and sisters of Christ that were all learning and sharing the responsibility. And you see this over and over again that even the most famous, Paul, would go into cities and what would he do? He would raise up leaders and he would hand it off. That the design never was for Paul to be in the middle of everything. And one of his favorite terms for all of his people that were laboring alongside him were his co-workers. 
There were people on his right and on his left that were going through the battle with him, much like Aaron and her were lifting his arms and he was lifting theirs. And on the extension, they had people that were lifting their arms and they were in this together and the world was revolutionized as men and women together alongside him began to propagate and proclaim the gospel. We look back at those moments, we look back at those times with nostalgia, but they're not nostalgic. This is the way that God's designed his church to operate. And one good snapshot is an example you find it in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, Paul's, his, kind of his magnum opus was the letter to the Romans. I mean, if there's something where you wanna to try to get inside his head and theologically, you can read the, the letter to Rome, the Christians, the church in Rome. Well, at the end of his letter, he does what he so often does. He, he gives some uh, parting greetings to people. He, he, he names some people. And embedded in Romans, this long letter, his longest letter, he takes the longest list of people. There's actually 28 names at the end in Romans chapter 16. It's, most people finish uh, at Romans 15 and don't even bother reading Romans 16 because it's just a list of names. But what it reflects is an illustration of what you see in Exodus chapter 18. You're introduced to people that were on either side of Paul that he called co-workers and co-laborers that extended the message and carried the weight. I wanna introduce you to a few just real quick because they're no names to us, but they, their names meant everything to the people of God in the first century and everything to Paul. First of all, he mentions, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe becomes this, uh, this character in this story, but uh, I think it's, it's hard for us to grasp the weight of who she was. This was someone that Paul had spent time with Paul and she was a minister. The word deacon means minister or servant of the church. It was a, a position of leadership within the church. Sincrea was a, a small city on the outskirts of Corinth. And she had forged a relationship apparently with Paul so much so that he entrusted her. She had gained the trust of Paul to carry his magnum opus to the letter, uh, the letter to the Roman church. And in handing it to her, she traveled the distance and she went to Rome. And as would happen so frequently when a letter was exchanged uh, in an oral society, they would meet together as a house church and she would stand to read the letter in front of all the presence of the witnesses in Rome. And as she read the words of Paul with his inflection and his intended emphasis, she would also feel questions perhaps about all the different dynamics, all the questions that you would have if you read Romans and many more. And she quite possibly was the first one to explicate the book of Romans publicly within the church. She was a coworker or co-laborer of Paul, but she wasn't alone. Matter of fact, in verse three, we're introduced to a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they were his coworkers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, he says. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Uh, this is one of the, another one of the house churches. They were uh, well known to the church at Rome, but they were also well known to the church at Ephesus. And they're also well known because they were famous for instructing and correcting the theology of Apollos, another apostle. Uh, and so Priscilla and Aquila, the leaders of this house church, uh, so formative and laboring alongside Paul. 
They were holding up his arms on his right and on his left. And the church was strengthened because Paul knew that it wasn't just about him. Now what began as happened for a few select men is now being expanded through the, the new kingdom and the new humanity of Christ. And then finally, we're gonna end with this one because uh, we don't have time to go through the whole list. I know you're asking the question, are we doing this whole list? Uh, greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert in Christ to in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you, and Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was, we're introduced to Mary, we're introduced to Andronicus, and we're introduced to Junia. Andronicus and Junia, both named as apostles within the church. And scriptures tells us in this situation that what Paul did is that he was in jail with them. That means that he was at his lowest. When he was being beaten and flogged for his faith, he would look to his right and his left and Junia was on one side and Andronicus was on the other and they were both prominent apostles within the church, missionaries, people sent to proclaim the gospel. And you see this wonderful dynamic that what began as a group of fallen people from all different backgrounds, now God was beginning to assemble men and women of faith to begin to lead the church because this is the model. This is the eternal principle that we hold onto, that it is not just for a select few to lead, that God gifts who he chooses to gift for the edification and the building up of the church to extend the gospel, to welcome people into a new humanity, into his new kingdom. And so what do we do? We follow Jethro's advice. We follow the model of Jesus and we follow the model of the Apostle Paul. This is who we are as people of God. And what do we do with it? Well, I think it comes down to four questions that I'm gonna leave you with. Just real quick, you can jot them down. Four questions for application based off the four pieces of advice from his father-in-law. The first one was to listen. Is there someone or something I need to listen to? This is a question for you. You can jot it down. Is there someone or something I need to listen to. I, I haven't been too excited about listening to it. I, I haven't been too excited about entertaining their opinion, but maybe, just maybe, the wounds of a friend can heal. Maybe, just maybe, God's put somebody in your life to speak something into you and into me so that we can be changed and be saved. Second one has, an, has to do with the second point of emphasis, teach. Do I need to teach or be taught? It means that if we're supposed to teach, then there are people to teach. And that means that there are people to learn. Maybe some of us need to be put, in a, put ourselves in a position to learn. And maybe some of us need to put ourselves in a position to teach. Um, we've got to get better at this. Um, many of you are called to teach. We're all called to learn. We, we've got to grow in our ability to be in environments and intentional about environments where we're ingesting the word of God together where we're learning from those that have been before us and been trained so that we can be imitators of Christ. We can follow Christ. When we do that, it goes to the third piece, which is to show what does my life reveal is the question. What does your life reveal? What do people in your home, people at school, what do people in your business, what do people online, what are they picking up from you? What do they see about Jesus from the way that you live your life? You see, it's not just about what you learn, it's about what you display. That's true transformation. And then finally, it's to share. Is there a responsibility that I need to share? Is there a load I need to help carry? 
uh, going into this next season as a church, there's going to be a lot of load that needs to be dispersed all across our congregation, all across our family. It's not designed for a select few. Uh, church was never designed to be a concert you come to or a TED talk. It, it, it's a place that you come in and you invest. And we've got to open the gates so that we can all say, I need help. And I'm just going to be honest with you, we need help. Uh, we're entering to a season where it, if it, it will be built upon and dependent upon whether or not we all come in and we share the responsibility. And so are you willing to share? Are you willing to help have someone else help you carry your load? All those things are hard. We're seeing it in real time with the people of God in the Exodus. And we're living it right now. This is the way life works. And God wants to direct us in it. So listen, teach, show, and share. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your will in our lives. We thank you, God, for your word that's true and uh, helps us to live the way you intended us to live. Shape us, God, now by it. I pray for every single person in here that uh, you would continue to help them to embody uh, your character to the power of your spirit. And Lord, help us to be a church that does not think of ourselves, but that we serve others uh, out of honor for you for your name and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.